today on Against the Grain, a look at anti-queer and anti-trans violence through the lenses of race, capital, and labor. UC Berkeley professor Eric Stanley joins me to discuss their new book, Atmospheres of Violence, Structuring Antagonism and the Trans-Queer Ungovernable, coming right up. And this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. Not just capital, but biocapital. Not just capitalism, but racial capitalism. Not just the apparently straightforward activity of blood donation, but the appropriation of cellular labor. Eric Stanley wants us to think very specifically about terms and concepts that the left throws around. Their new book, Atmospheres of Violence, offers a set of arguments that puts anti-queer and anti-trans violence in a new light. Slavery, commodification, the pharmaceutical industry, patenting, LGBT activism, and other things are considered in relation to how mainstream society and normative culture regards and treats queer and trans people of color. Eric A. Stanley is Associate Professor in the Department of Gender and Women's Studies at UC Berkeley. The full title of their new book is Atmospheres of Violence, Structuring Antagonism and the Trans-Queer Ungovernable. When Eric and I connected recently, I asked them what happened at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando, Florida on June 12, 2016. A shooter walked into the Pulse nightclub, uh, Omar Mateen, and started shooting somewhat randomly, um, beginning at the front of the club. People that were dancing, enjoying themselves, it was around 2 a.m., um, heard the noise and they weren't sure what it was at first. They weren't sure if it was, you know, parts of the music or something like that. But once they realized what was happening, screams broke out, people started running towards the back of the club, away from the shooter. Um, a number of them gathered in the restrooms, which were also towards the back of the club, attempting to hide. And Mateen, um, you know, for a number of hours, walked around attempting to shoot and kill every person that he could find. Um, you know, poking people with the end of his rifle, seeing if people were alive, uh, hunting down those that were still hidden. And so that left a huge number of wounded people along with those that were murdered that night um, scattered throughout the club. Right? And the police finally broke down a wall and accessed the club, but that wasn't for a number of hours later. So he was just shooting throughout the night. 49 dead, at least another 53 wounded. Who tended to patronize this club? Pulse was an explicitly LGBT club. It was mostly black and brown um, people that would gather there, dance, hang out, build social worlds and nightlife like we do. And so that's who was there that night, and that's who was generally there. And why did this man, Omar Mateen, do this? Why did he enter and fire indiscriminately and hunt people down over a period of hours? As important as the um, scene itself of the brutal violence that was the Pulse assassinations, and I think it's important to call them that, is the way that the afterlife of the story became narrativized in public culture and the press. And so there's two different ways that we could understand why he was doing this, right? The first is that it was a direct homophobic, transphobic attack specifically on LGBT people, right? He chose Pulse as um, the place that he wanted to go um, create this mass killing. Um, the other story that circulated afterwards was that he wasn't explicitly looking for a gay club, but he was invested in shooting and murdering somewhat indiscriminately. Um, and so that is the other side of the story. You write that at least one reframing or recasting of this event in the media was that it was a terrorist attack by a, quote, radical Muslim on all Americans. Yes. So um, the way that the story became recast was that exactly what you're saying. 
um, that it was an attack by a quote-unquote radical jihadist on all Americans, so it wasn't specifically against LGBT people. Um, and that's, that was kind of the final story. That was the one that the media grabbed and ran with after it was first reported that it was a specifically LGBT attack. And what do you make of this recasting? What do you find significant about the movement away from the event being seen as a scene of anti-trans queer violence? I think that the, the second order retelling of it was an attempt by the state and also the media to kind of make it into a generic scene of violence that was levied against quote unquote all Americans. And so it was able to fold in these scenes of what I understand to be directly anti-trans and queer violence into a national scene that was directed against everybody, right? So it was a, a kind of covering up of the specificity of those attacks. And is that kind of covering up emblematic in your view of the way that normative culture in the U.S. views and reports on these kinds of incidents? Yes, exactly. I mean, I think either they go ignored and they're hidden, or if they're so large that they can't be hidden, they get kind of re-narrated and um, assumed underneath this nationalistic narrative of quote-unquote everybody. I think that one of the things that I'm arguing is that, of course, a cis-sexist and heterosexist culture is never willing to sit with the enormity and the intensity of these scenes of violence that are directed against trans and queer gender nonconforming people. But at the same time, I would say that that, you know, normative culture is also simultaneously obsessed with these forms of violence. Right. So it's this kind of double bind that I think is really important that we pay attention to. Oh, that's interesting. So you sense a kind of, um, would you call it a lurid fascination, a, a, a fascination based on the sensationalism of certain acts of violence, um, maybe based not so much on concern for those affected and maimed and killed and injured, but uh, based on some interest of another kind? Yes, definitely. I would say that um, anti-trans and queer violence is also pedagogical in that it teaches heterosexual normative culture how to maintain itself, right? And I think that that's why it's this double bind that I'm trying to think about, right? So it, at the same time that it invisibilizes certain cases, it also holds other cases up as emblematic. But as you're saying, not in an attempt to um, produce a kind of generalized scene of care or to end that violence, but indeed to almost use it as a warning sign. A warning sign against otherness, against being or doing something that is uh, not approved of or considered uh, marginal by uh, the status quo? Yes, definitely. I mean, one of the other arguments that I make is, you know, normative, uh, white heteronormative culture is actually incredibly fragile. And so it's, a, it's constantly having to um, build itself up and maintain its borders because it's always about to crumble. And so I think that um, the way that it attempts to um, position violence directed towards trans and queer people is also about policing those walls. Would you argue, Eric, that a white heteronormative culture needs otherness, needs marginalized populations uh, like trans and queer people in order to, uh, to be, to, to exist in a sense? Yes, definitely. So I work throughout the text with the concept of the constitutive outside, right, the, the necessary figure that is produced as the other of the norm. And of course, I, following a long line of specifically black feminist thought, argue that that, um, that position, right, it's not an actual person, person, but that position is necessary to constitute the norm, 
So it, the, the norm literally cannot exist without the projection of that form of otherness. And that projection is also not just theoretical, but it, of course, is incredibly violent, as we've seen throughout, um, you know, in the poll shooting and throughout the text itself. How widespread is violence against queer and trans people in this country? One kind of statistic that oftentimes gets recited is that every year that there has been recorded data, um, the numbers have grown each year. So it's an, it's an incline each year in terms of reported um, murders and other forms of violence, specifically those directed towards trans women of color, specifically black and brown trans women, so that's really important. So I'm not making an argument that everyone that identifies as LGBT has the same relationship to violence. It's actually the opposite. Um, the disaggregation of that category is what I'm really interested in. So, you know, moneyed, um, ruling class, white, cis men and women have a very different relationship to other people um, that might also identify within these categories. And so that's an important point to make. Um, but nonetheless, um, the overall forms of violence, of course, are increasing at the same time we're told that we have growing access, we have you know, growing acceptance, um, all these other forms of assimilation are allegedly affording us um, a more livable world, but what we're seeing is the opposite. And so one of the other things I'm attempting to think about is what is that actual relationship then, right? What is the structuring relationship between assimilation and um, sustained, if not growing, forms of directed violence? Eric Stanley joins me on Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. They are an associate professor in the Department of Gender and Women's Studies at UC Berkeley. And they are the author of Atmospheres of Violence, Structuring Antagonism and the Trans-Queer Ungovernable. I'm C.S. Song, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. So in the aftermath of this horrific massacre, horrific 2016 massacre at this Pulse nightclub in Florida, people were encouraged, were exhorted to donate blood to help those injured. Was enough blood given? Yes, so um, in the aftermath of Pulse, as you're saying, people gathered together and they wanted to give blood because that's one of the only ways that we can imagine what redress might look like in the aftermath of such a horrific scene. And so, you know, families, friends, loved ones gathered and they were like, you know, we're going to give blood. Um, you know, there was a large amount of blood collected and not a whole lot of that blood was actually used because so many people had passed, had already died, and so they didn't actually need a lot of blood. Um, but one of the things that people quickly learned, if they didn't already know, was that um, people that identified as gay men, MSM, men who sleep with men, along with trans women, um, have been historically excluded from the ability to donate blood in the United States, right? And that's one of the many afterlives of the HIV AIDS pandemic, right? The idea that MSM categories of people as well as trans women um, are quote unquote too dangerous to donate blood. And so they were uh, more or less systematically excluded from the ability to give blood in the aftermath of the attacks. Can you say a bit more about why these two categories of people have been prohibited from giving blood? Why their blood has been deemed dangerous? Sure, so um, gay men and trans women um, have historically been excluded from giving blood because of transphobia and because of homophobia, right? All blood is tested for HIV, so there's no actual epidemiological reason to exclude those categories, but it's you know, a kind of um, discursive holdover of the very early moment of the pandemic in the United States in the early 1980s when, um, you know, the government decided that certain populations were too predisposed to HIV infection so that they were uh, systematically excluded from the ability to give blood. Right, and I guess the assumption is that trans women assigned the gender or sex of male at birth, the assumption then is that 
they uh, are to be assumed to be uh, former men who have slept with men. Yeah, one of the points that I make in the book is that this isn't simply a kind of, you know, a misclassification, but this is a, an exacting form of transmisogyny um, that happens over and over again under the medical system that assumes trans women are men, right? And that, of course, is, is a sign of transmisogyny. I think that's really important to make clear, and so it's not just a simple mistake. Um, but I, I argue throughout the text that that's uh, another kind of exacting moment of the power of naming um, as uh, an attempt to cull people together and exclude them. Now, one of your interests, Eric, is in capitalism and the way capitalism operates. And we think of things designated, so many things designated for sale and purchase uh, commodities. Uh, so when you think about blood donation, and you've thought about this a lot, uh, one thinks about, well, this is a gift, right? People are giving their blood. They're not getting compensation. They're not seeking compensation. Can we then see the donation of blood as outside the circuits of markets and outside the circuits of capital? Yeah, so oftentimes, as you pointed toward, uh, the idea is that gifting is outside and sometimes actually against capital. But as I argue in the text, working off um, other theorists who have thought about this question as well, I suggest that the gift economy is actually a central feature of capitalism and does not demonstrate it's outside. And I think that that's really important as we think about the multiple scales of capitalism. So we have the kind of traditional economic scene of capitalist accumulation, but also uh, in this scene and throughout the book, I'm interested in the affective dimensions of capital, right? The ways that um, people collect up other forms of value that are not only economic, but also are economic as well. Yeah, talk more about this. So affective refers to the, the emotions, correct? Yes. So um, the question of what constitutes the affective or affect um, is, a, is a much larger conversation. But I think in this sense, you know, we can think about um, the emotional forces that gather up around certain objects or people. So then how would you, given what you've said, how would you assess what happened, and especially in light of the fact that, as you indicate in your book, the blood that was given, the excess blood that was given, you said that a lot of blood was given and was not abused. Many people, unfortunately, tragically died in the massacre. Some of that blood, or much of that blood, was, was sold on the market, right? Yes, so the um, sale of blood through institutions, right? So there's these semi-private, semi-public organizations that oftentimes run the blood drives, right? And then that blood enters into hospital systems, for example, and they get compensated. It's not an exact sale, but they get compensation for that. Um, it's about 200 and some dollars a pint. And so that actually creates a whole lot of wealth um, for the companies that are doing these blood drives. Right. Um, and then it goes up through the hospital systems. I mean, you actually can get get charged per unit of blood when you're in the hospital and you need blood. And so that there's that other scene as well. And the system itself is incredibly confusing because it's a bunch of federal, state and sometimes countywide regulations. And they can be at odds with each other. And there's also norms, uh, laws and regulations, and they can all be at odds with each other as well. And so actually tracing the flows of blood can be incredibly mm, complicated, right? Because you actually can't sell your blood. You can be compensated for your time donating your plasma, for example, but you can't actually sell the commodity itself. And when they are being compensated, they're not being compensated for the blood itself per, per its volume. But again, under this auspice of being compensated for the labor necessary to extract that substance. Is it fair in your mind that this blood that was freely donated, donated with emotional urgency, was later 
appropriated in ways that the donors might not approve of? Yeah, I mean, I think that where the blood goes, like, you know, obviously, hopefully it goes to help people. But what I'm interested in is um, who is compensated, who is not compensated, who is made into waste, and who gets to claim that kind of affective value of being able to, quote unquote, give the gift of life, right, blood itself, who is able to be a part of that economy and who is excluded from it. I'm CS. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Eric Stanley joins me, an associate professor in the Department of Gender and Women's Studies at UC Berkeley. And we are talking about their book, Atmospheres of Violence, Structuring, Antagonism, and the Trans, Queer, Ungovernable, published by Duke University Press. Now, in this chapter we're discussing, which is the second chapter of your book, Atmospheres of Violence, you follow up the discussion of of pulse and the issue of blood donation and we'll we'll get back to the issue of blood donation and circulation with a discussion of slavery of chattel slavery why the transition what is the link in your mind between uh, what you are talking about in relation to a blood and uh, capitalism and slavery and what was done to enslaved people. So this chapter in particular, which is called Necro Capital and the book at large, is um, invested in thinking about the ways in which uh, chattel slavery and its many afterlives appearing in forms of anti-blackness are constitutive of the United States. And because this book is mostly based in the United States, I think it's incredibly important that we continue to return to that scene, not as simply an object of history, but as history's ongoingness. And another reason that it's so important in the text is because I'm also engaging with multiple conversations around the term biocapital, which has been circulating in academic and activist discourse for maybe the last 15 years or so. <clears throat> and something that I wanted to make clear was that we can't even begin to think about modern forms of biocapital unless we think about the scene of chattel slavery, right? That's one of the originary scenes in the United States of biocapital's massive proliferation. And how would you define biocapital? So, biocapital is generally understood as the coming together of the biological and capitalism. So it can be things like, you know, organ donation, organ sales, things like that, as well as post-genomic research in our more contemporary moment. Um, what constitutes its boundaries are somewhat up for debate, but generally speaking, it's an attention to the ways that those two idioms come together, right? The biological and capitalism. How momentous in your mind was the practice of setting the price paid on and for enslaved people in terms of how capitalism operated and developed? Sure. So um, when slave auctioners um, auctioned off enslaved Africans, one of the things that those that were purchasing human life thought about was, am I going to get a quote-unquote good return on this investment, right? How long are they going to be able to stay alive for? What is it going to cost for me to keep them alive? And how much labor am I going to be able to force out of them, right? And so then the concept of lifetime became an economic concept where you were hedging future returns off of this initial bet. And so it's this incredibly violent and brutal scene of the literal transformation of a living person into a commodity. You write that to understand the making of, quote, bad blood that was denied donation in the aftermath of Pulse, of what happened at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando in 2016, we must register how blood's surplus value is gathered against black labor. What do you mean here? Sure. So in that part, I'm thinking um, with a theorist named Colin Diane that actually traces through actual medieval law to the contemporary moment, um, the way that imprisoned people 
were dislocated from the very possibility of bequeathing their belongings onto future generation, right? So it's this kind of uh, legal historical argument that um, a category of person here called the prisoner became frozen in time. Um, and she uses this incredibly uh, elaborate and amazing theorization to think about the ways in which blood becomes understood as this substance that is both about the materiality of life, but also has a kind of extra magical um, parameters to it that make it something more than just a biological substance, right? It's, it's overly signified. Right. Blood as a, a symbol, but also as a material, interests you quite a bit. And I'm thinking of the blood that was associated with African-Americans and how that was considered uh, impure. And of course, there were uh, theories about, you know, how many drops of blood of, of quote, black blood uh, would be required to make a person into uh, an African-American in the eyes of, uh, for example, the U.S. government. Is that what you're interested in uh, partly as well? The um, notion of, of impure blood and bad blood and how that relates to uh, this country's racial history? Yes, definitely. I mean, I think that, you know, the long history of the, the commingling of a racist common sense and U.S. jurisprudence through things like the law of hypo descent, as well as a number of um, anti-indigenous laws that also thought about indigenous blood in similar and sometimes different ways. Um, are of course not outliers to the otherwise smooth space of U.S. law, but indeed constitute its internal logics. And so that becomes incredibly important to me because um, that helps us see, as another argument that I make throughout the book, that uh, the law itself both produces its interior logics while also assuming to be outside of discourse. What do you, Eric, see as the relationship between anti-blackness and anti-trans, queer, discrimination, and violence? So in this book, I'm primarily focused on racialized anti-trans and queer violence, right? So it's always within the idiom of race that I'm thinking about anti-trans and queer violence. To that end, I'm not trying to assume this analogous relationship between anti-blackness and anti-trans and queer violence, right? I don't think that that's particularly useful, but I'm interested in the ways that those logics feed back onto each other and actually rebuild each other in both symbolic and material ways. Getting back to the restrictions that prevent some people, uh, namely men who have had sex with men and trans women from giving blood, one might argue, well, lifting those restrictions would promote a kind of inclusion that, as you say, many mainstream LGBT political organizations support. Do you see any problems with that? So within the last, I don't know, probably 10 years, there has been a major push to lift these lifetime blood bans, and they are more or less, uh, now it's a year um, in most cases, it's, it's a kind of year ban on blood donation. Um, and I think for me, the attempt to lift the ban is not particularly politically useful because it assumes that simply lifting that ban will allow for a full participation in the imagined nightmare of U.S. society. And so for me, I think I want to kind of pause for a moment and resist that as indeed self-evidently a path towards liberation. Like, I don't think that there is a one-to-one. -one. And, um, and yet that becomes one of the primary avenues that we have to even think about these questions, right? It's like exclusion bad, now inclusion good. And I'm much more interested in thinking about the messy relationality between exclusion and inclusion and not think that one actually negates the other. Um, and I think that we need to do that kind of work, that kind of intellectual and activist work, because power is not always so direct.
That's the voice of Eric Stanley. They teach in the Department of Gender and Women's Studies at UC Berkeley, and they have a new book out. It's called Atmospheres of Violence, Structuring Antagonism and the Trans, Queer, Ungovernable. You can check out information about Eric Stanley on our website, againstthegrain.org. I am C.S. Song, and this is Against the Grain. One theme of this chapter, this chapter which has the title Necro-Capital, Blood's General Strike, is labor. And uh, many people might not tie blood to labor. What, what kind of labor could blood possibly be doing? Although maybe the way I frame it, uh, maybe an answer starts to, to materialize. But I'd like you to articulate what what labor of whom or what do you see as important uh, to understand uh, as we grapple with this issue of anti-queer violence and and the blood that seems to uh, circulate throughout this chapter and throughout your book? So as feminist theorists such as Horton Spillers and Donna Haraway and many others have helped us pay attention to the reality that our bodies may indeed not stop at our skin. One of the questions that I think through here is, well, perhaps our labor doesn't as well. And so what that means in a material sense is that I was interested in opening up the question of viral labor. Can virus, are viruses producing a commodity or are they instrumental in produce, the possibility of producing a commodity? Are they uh, doing forms of labor, and it might seem like a kind of, I don't know, maybe a perhaps outlandish set of questions, but as I trace throughout the chapter, it actually becomes, you know, viral labor becomes one of the preconditions of a massive multi, multi, multi-billion dollar industry of, you know, pharmaceutical research and development, as of course we see now with, you know, the most recent um, COVID. And so for me, these sets of questions really came to my consciousness, you know, in the early 2000s, I was sitting in a HIV um, clinic and I was getting a blood drawn and I was like, oh, I wonder where this blood goes after it leaves my arm. Um, and I asked the phlebotomist, then I asked, uh, you know, a number of people that were working at the clinic and nobody really knew. I mean, they knew where they sent it to, but they didn't know like all the different you know, modes of transportation and where it would get parsed out and which part would go where. And so I attempted to trace that for a really long time and kept coming up to dead ends. And the inability for me to actually figure that out became a really interesting question. Um, and so that was one of the things that began this entire set of um, research objectives that I, that I follow in this chapter. You bring up in your book the National Institutes of Health AIDS Reagent Program. What is that program about? So the AIDS Reagent Bank is essentially a bank, just, just like what it sounds like, at the NIH. And it stores HIV cell lines as well as other pathogens. And so you can go online, for example, and order like this specific HIV cell line if you're a researcher and then they'll send it to you theoretically free of charge. Um, and so it's, you know, sits there as a um, repository for a bunch of different cell lines. Some of them have somewhat intricate um, sets of notes on them that tell you where they might come from, not actually who they come from, but where they might come from and or what conditions, uh, how that HIV cell line ended up there, and others have no information. Um, and they're used uh, in much research and development around HIV in our contemporary moment, right? So it's still an active bank. That's still where researchers primarily get their uh, reagents from. Researchers in the public or the private sector or both? Well, it's hard to know. <laughs> um, I'm laughing because I don't even know what the public or the private sector is, especially around research and development. So the majority of HIV research is actually done at public institutions, places like UCSF, but then rather curiously, um, private pharmaceutical institutes oftentimes get to produce that medication for a massive profit, right? And so it's this interesting public-private partnership that seems incredibly unclear, but the one thing that is clear is that 
the companies are able to extract many billions of dollars from the public sector and move it into the private sector. The work done by these HIV cell lines, to the degree that they uh, are used, as you said, by researchers to develop medications, is, is this what you mean by viral labor, the labor done by this cellular material? Yes. So, of course, you know, we'd see the ways in which a lab technician, a researcher, people producing medications, packaging medication, like those are all kind of more classically understood sites of labor. But I'm interested in the kind of literal microscopic forms of HIV replication as also a scene of labor. And one of the reasons that that becomes important is because the ways that that is abstracted from the body that it came from originally, like, you know, and so that scene of abstraction, um, I see a parallel between that and other forms of abstracted labor. Yeah, and importantly, and interestingly, the, the body from which uh, these HIV cell lines came, uh, the bodies are often dead. What, what's the significance there to you that uh, we have cell lines that represent, in a sense, people who are no longer there, who are no longer here? Sure. So, um, you know, this is not unique to what I'm calling necrocapital in that it, you know, follows the pattern of traditional capital in that those that produce a commodity oftentimes have no access to enjoying that commodity, right? That's alienated labor. But still, I think paying attention to this scene is important because it, in a certain sense, sheds a light on the entire horrible scene that is pharmaceutical research and development in that those whose labor in terms of virological labor is literally the foundation of the development of a specific drug oftentimes might either theoretically or materially not have access to that same drug, right? In this case, they might already be dead, but we can also think more broadly about the transnational inaccessibility of you know, antiretroviral drugs because of the increasingly um, prohibitive price of them. So we have medication that is taken by people at risk for HIV. I think it goes by PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis or Truvada. But as you indicate, its prohibitive cost means uh, many people can't afford it. Can we generalize about which populations don't have, can't have access to PrEP? It follows all other scenes of medical racism in that Black, Indigenous, and um, Latinx and Brown populations in the United States have a structurally diminished uh, forms of access to PrEP. And then we can also think about the transnational scene, right, in which countries have more access and which ones have much less access. And so, you know, it follows all the same patterns that we might um, assume it to, to follow. No doubt a form of violence, of, of economic violence perpetrated against certain people, right? The, one could argue, well, this is just the market working. This is just the way prices operate. And so some people, unfortunately, can't afford it and some people can. But, but you, I, I'm sure you see this as sort of a, an intentional form of violence. Yes, definitely. I mean, I call this form of violence throughout the book um, paradigmatic neglect. So I'm interested in both what oftentimes gets read as spectacularized violence, things like murders and direct attacks and things like that. But there's also all these other forms of violence that oftentimes don't get understood as such, but I'm suggesting that they must be understood under that same sort of rubric. I mean, I think that you know, there's multiple ways of killing people, and neglect is oftentimes actually much more mm, productive in the negative sense than direct attacks. And, you know, I also think capitalism itself is a form of violence, and so this is also an explicitly anti-capitalist text. I think if we're invested in ending anti-trans, anti-queer, racialized violence, then we also have to end capitalism. That's Eric Stanley, Associate Professor in the Department of Gender and Women's Studies at UC Berkeley. We are talking about their new book, Atmospheres of Violence, Structuring Antagonism and the Trans, Queer, and Governable. We have a link to Eric's book on our website, againstthegrain.org. 
I'm CS Song, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. You write that in a lethal irony, it is the logic of the patent, the argument that innovation is only spurred by the security of private property, that replicates the virus, the HIV virus, and its differential death, the way it kills certain populations as opposed to others. Talk, talk about that. Sure. I mean, this has come to kind of more collective consciousness in the recent past because of the conversations or lack of conversations around, you know, patenting uh, COVID vaccines, for example. But the idea is, of course, following the, f- the free market ideology is that there will be no innovation unless we can patent something and then put it in to the private market under claims of private property, right? The idea is that people won't make anything or do anything unless there is this massive benefit only for them, right? And so what that does is, um, you know, disregards the idea that there's something important in, you know, the publicness of these endeavors, right? That like everyone should share in whatever is, is developed. And so, um, you know, that, that same logic, right, the idea that innovation won't happen unless something is put under patent is also the same logic that excludes um, populations from accessing that same good. If we take your point, Eric, that the blood represented, for example, by these cell lines, HIV cell lines collected and... Uh, aggregated at the National Institutes of Health AIDS Reagent Program represents cellular labor, viral labor, or does labor, and that this is kind of stolen labor, right? Labor, this blood is, is in a sense, uh, well, it is. It's taken from uh, people who had HIV. Then what do you see as the possible responses to this stolen labor to this act of stealing labor? One um, possible response to the scene of necrocapital would be, of course, to pay people for their viral labor, right? A kind of compensation or wages for viral labor or something like that. But I actually don't think that that gets us out of the trouble. Uh, The end of this chapter demands a total reorientation between the very possibility of life and labor, right? which here goes under the name of a trans and queer anti-capitalism and a thinking about what is necessary to build flourishing for all. And I think that, you know, a simple uh, project of wages for viral labor is not going to get us there um, because it holds on to all the, you know, the forms of differential death that got us there in the first place, right? The anti-blackness, the um, in, enduring logic of settler colonialism that are the precondition of our forms of capitalism in our contemporary moment. And so without um, adequately addressing, which is to say destroying all of those formations, then we are not really left anywhere substantively different than we were before. You find significant an event, a direct action staged by ACT UP, AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, on October 11th, 1992. What took place? Sure. So this action by ACT UP um, now gets called the Ashes Action, and people um, walked through the streets or through pathways and streets of Washington, D.C. with um, urns and other boxes that held the remains of their loved ones, their friends, their family, their parents that had died of HIV. Um, And they had a really somber march towards the fence of the White House lawn. And they were flanked on either side by DC riot cops. Um, And as they marched towards the fence, Um, the police got more violent and people had to start running because the police were attempting to barricade them off so they couldn't get to the fence. And once they got to the fence, what they did is they opened up the urns, they ripped open the bags of ground bone and scattered them on the the lawn of the White House. Um, And they did that because they wanted to return the bodies of their loved ones that they understood to be the victims 
of their paradigmatic neglect of the administration to the scene of their murder, right? So this is returning the ashes onto the White House lawn to make a theoretical and a material statement that you all are murdering us and we're going to make this invisibilized harm hyper-visibilized through the scattering of ashes. And what's your sense of, of the value of this kind of disruption, of this kind of cathartic disruption? I find this action in particular so incredibly moving just because of its, its weight. But I also find it to be an in interesting to think about in relationship to my theorization of viral labor, right, as a form of work stoppage, as a form of possibly a strike, you know, and of course I'm expanding that category. It doesn't look like a traditional strike and I'm sure, you know, others will totally disagree with me. But I think that there's something there, something beautiful, something haunting, something horrible that we must claim, that we must continue to remember because the HIV AIDS pandemic is not over. We should be doing this every day, dumping the ashes of our loved ones who are continuing to die because of medical neglect, because of the patent onto the White House lawn. Eric Stanley, we've been talking, as I mentioned, about only one chapter of your book. Uh, what, well, let's start with it. What is this book's overall project? What are you trying to, to do with it? So the book makes a fairly simple claim, um, but it's kind of repercussions are fairly large. And so, you know, among the claims I make is that racialized anti-trans queer violence is foundational to Western modernity and not its aberration, right? So the way that we oftentimes now think about anti-trans and queer violence is of course that it's, you know, the work of a few bad apples, you know, just a few discrete homophobic or transphobic people carried out that attack. But what I'm attempting to reorganize is the reality that those specific attacks are simply emblematic of a much larger structure and indeed a structuring apparatus that organizes the social itself. And what do the, the other chapters of your book address? Sure, so I um, have a first chapter that is thinking specifically about murdered trans and queer people in an attempt to pay attention to the scene of overkill. And overkill is a term that um, is both a medical term and a legal term used to describe a scene of harm where someone is not simply murdered, but such an intense form of violence is done to the body that it's about something much more than that specific murder, right? And I argue that it's about killing the very possibility of that person. And so that, uh, you know, there's the first chapter and then there's the necrocapital chapter that we've been discussing throughout this interview. And um, then there's a chapter that's making an argument around representation itself, right? Because as we've seen in the recent past, there's been an explosion of specifically trans characters on mainstream TV and in other forms of media. And something that I think is really interesting and important that we sit with is that at the same time that we've had this explosion of you know, trans representation, uh, we've also seen the uh, increase in anti-trans violence. So what is this relationship between representation and um, the material world? Because again, representation is sold to us as the remedy for structuring harm, right? It's like once we have access to quote unquote good representation, it will decrease that harm, but we're not seeing that. And so, you know, that's an attempt to think about that set of concerns. And then the last chapter before the coda is um, thinking about the multiple scenes of trans and queer youth suicide that were somewhat popular to think about in the media about 10 or 15 years ago. Um, and then, you know, things like Dan Savage's It Gets Better campaign as the remedy to, the, to those suicides. And I do some close readings of suicide notes and I think about some other scenes in that chapter that are really hard to sit with. Um, an attempt to think about people that are placed in this situation as indeed not simply, you know, quote unquote, broken children, but um, people that are forced to the edge of, vit uh, of vitality by a murderous world, 
right? And so I say that suicide is murder by other means, right? By a, a transphobic, racist, homophobic society. What do you think, Eric, of the extent to which anti-capitalist movements in the U.S. address issues of anti-trans, anti-queer violence? Well, unfortunately, anti-capitalism in the United States is not as large as I would like it to be. Um, but I do think, um, you know, what, what analysis is available, what movements, what organizing is there, sometimes does not think specifically enough about anti-trans and queer violence in the ways that I think is necessary. And so this book is, you know, also an invitation, right? It's not actually a condemnation, but a, an invitation for organizers to ensure that they're always including um, this within their analysis. You know, Marx's more, more orthodox readers, I think, always need to be reminded of that which they are resistant to um, including in their analysis. And, you know, and so I hope, hopefully it's taken up in that spirit as indeed something to expand our collective knowledges and indeed our collective action. Eric Stanley, Gender and Women's Studies professor at UC Berkeley. They are also a, a filmmaker. They've directed in collaboration with Chris Vargas the films Criminal Queers and Homotopia. And we've been talking about their new book, Atmospheres of Violence, Structuring Antagonism and the Trans Queer Ungovernable. It's published by Duke University Press. Eric, thanks so much for your work and for this book and for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. And this is CS, suggesting the important thing is not to stop questioning, and we hope you'll join us next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. You can visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio, resources, and more. You can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio, and you can follow us on Twitter at Radio Against.